This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, Dr. Andrea LaFountain, her work, How Patients Think, A Science-Based Strategy for Patient Engagement and Population Health. Dr. LaFountain, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Andrea's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, over the past decade, there have been increasing efforts to improve patient engagement or alternatively patient-centered care. For example, the ACA created the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, and over the past few years, Health Affairs has published two issues dedicated to patient engagement. Among other reasons to better engage patients, an estimated one out of two patients leave a medical visit not understanding what was recommended. Approximately half of all patients do not take their medications as prescribed, that's linked to over 100,000 deaths annually, and non-adherence among Medicare diabetics, for example, costs the taxpayer approximately $3 billion annually. Despite all the interest and effort in improving clinicians' efforts to successfully engage patients, few would argue healthcare providers need to do a better or more effective job of patient management or supporting patient self-management, particularly when the industry is facing the baby boomer, excuse me, age wave, and the nation's facing the apparent return of rapid healthcare spending growth. So with that on background, Andre, let me ask you uh, first, why does the problem of non-adherence, or as you say, the epidemic of non-adherence persist? That's a great question, David. And it, it's still around persisting despite you know, decades of research and effort to eradicate it. I think it still exists today in the same scale and magnitude of in the 1970s when we really started to put a concerted effort to um, reduce the number of disengaged patients. We're still at the same levels of disengagement, and I think it's because we've approached disengagement from completely the wrong direction. You know, what we tend to do is we, we ask patients, the typical method is we ask the patients, why are you not, you know, taking your medications? Why are you not effectively dieting? Why are you not keeping up with your doctor's appointments? And we expect the patients to be able to tell us the explanations for these subconscious, irrational, maladaptive decisions that they've made. Mm-hmm. They they cannot get to that level of explanation. So I think we've we've just went about it at a very surface level. You know, we're we're giving it lip service. We're not really getting into it with proper research like we do across the rest of the healthcare continuum, like with developing new molecular entities. The research that goes into that, it's serious, it's significant, it's robust, and it has strong application. In contrast, the research that we do to understand patient engagement is not robust, it's not rigorous, it's not scientifically driven, and it yields us findings that are superfluous and not able to actually tackle the real issue. So you say in your work there's an over-reliance, as you just suggested, on patient reporting, and that patients don't necessarily know what they don't know or why it is they continue to smoke when they do know 
it's um, um, harmful. You talk it, about yes. the example you give is why is it that, and the, the question you pose is why is it that highly toxic regimens such as chemotherapy have better adherence rates uh, than more tolerable drugs, as you note, such as relatively benign statins. So uh, noting that, you have a section in your work titled The Importance of Differentiation. And I think that helps, or at least help me, get to a better understanding of your argument. So can you discuss, uh, and the example you give is Medicare, or excuse me, medication costs. The fact that mm -hmm. the vast majority of patients note that medication costs are too high, but you say knowing that really isn't very helpful. That's right. So typical market research would, would say when we interview 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 patients, and again, we ask the patients, why did you stop taking that drug? 98% of patients will say it costs too much. Now, they're not paying the full cost. The vast majority of these people are paying co-pays, whether it be $5, $20, or $50. Now, I'm not saying that a $20 co-pay is easy, you know, money for, for everybody. I'm not saying that for some about, you know, 5 to 8% of the population, that $20 is definitely a hard push to, to get into their budget. However, when we ask them, why did you stop taking the drug? If 98% of patients tell us it's because they're too expensive, then it cannot be the cause of why they disengage because it's not differentiating those who don't from those who do. When we ask those who did not terminate their treatment, they're still taking the drug, what do you think about the price of your medication? They, they too tell us it costs too much. So that's where the 98% number comes from, across the general board of those who are still taking it and those who have quit taking it. If they're all saying it costs too much, where is the difference? What's the difference between those who are doing it still and those who are not? the good behavior and the bad behavior. There must be something that's different between those who ultimately make the decision to stay and those who ultimately make the decision to quit. We have to find out what is different about them. Now, from a statistical perspective, when we go to model that data, it turns out completely flat. You know, they're saying the same thing, but their behavior is different. That, that in statistical terms, means there is a zero correlation. A zero correlation means we have nothing on which to base a behavior change program. And that's part of the problem, David. We're not getting to the root cause. What is different about those who stay the course from those who do not stay the course? But what is different between them? If we don't get to a point of differentiation, we cannot design programs to support those who would quit by knowing where they are different from those who stay the course and achieve good outcomes. So let's go to your example. that help clarify? Yes, that's very helpful. So let's go to the example you give in your work. Uh, parents who have children with ADHD, some parents uh, medically treat their children, some don't. So let's use that as an example or as you discuss in your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yes, in that research, this is a nationwide sample of parents of children with ADHD. The children were aged between 6 to 12 years old. And in our research, we had, um, you know, hundreds of parents who were doing well and maintaining a pharmacological regimen for treating their child. 
And then we also had hundreds of patients or parents who, who were not, they had decided to abandon the pharmacological treatment of their child. Now, we had a lot of different variables in our research. Again, we're looking for what is the point of differentiation? What is different about how those parents who are managing pharmacologically, what do they think about ADHD that is different from those who do not treat? And one of the strongest differentiators between those two populations, David, was those who treated with pharmacological medication believed that ADHD was a biochemical disease. Now, they didn't necessarily use that language, but that was the, the intent of what they were communicating to us. They were aware that there was something different biochemically or biologically in their child. In contrast, those who did not treat pharmacologically did not believe it was a biochemical or a biological condition. They, they considered it a behavioral condition. And we can very well understand that interpretation. It's a misinterpretation, but we understand it because typically the concept of a sick child, if we can use that label, mm -hmm. well, and I'll use that label just because in the majority of parents, medicine comes into the child when the child is sick. Should medicine come into a child with ADHD? Well, perhaps not if the, if the parent says, my child is not sick. So the question becomes, well, what is sick? And the classic definition of a sick child is fever. You know, most parents, when, when their child has a fever, they'll say, oh, my child is sick. I need to bring him to the doctor. I need to get some medication. Now, there is no fever in ADHD. There's no rash or vomiting or diarrhea or any of those classic biological symptoms that create the label sick, they don't exist in ADHD. Therefore, the parent is not going to classify the child as sick. Therefore, the parent is not going to suggest that the child needs medication. So that turned out to be the biggest differentiator between the engaged in medication parents and those who did not use medication. We called it a, a misinterpretation of the etiology of disease. So if we then profiled the parents and we found, oh, this parent has a misinterpretation of the etiology of disease, we now know what the solution is. And that's why we've got to get to the point of differentiation, David. If we don't know what that differentiator is, we cannot generate the solution. So the solution now is, is very obvious. We need to communicate and educate with that parent that this is, in fact, a biological condition, even though there's no fever, there's no vomiting, but the child still has a biological condition. It requires medication. And that's a fairly simple communication that the doctor, the pediatrician, can have with the mother. Thank you. So this misinterpretation, you say, uh, gets at what you phrase in the, your volume, cognitive profiling and the need for cognitive restructuring. Yeah. Or as you phrase otherwise, what's required is a pre-identified set of moderators of behavior. So know those um, um, moderators that enable patients to be adherent. Exactly. So ADHD is an example. You do discuss breast cancer as well. Yes. Um, are there other, um, I think another example uh, might be instructive. Uh, breast, would you like to discuss breast cancer? Is there another uh, example you think that's um, very helpful? Yeah, we can talk about breast cancer. And 
it's an interesting parallel to the one we were just talking about in ADHD, where in ADHD, the biggest factor that explains the difference between the engaged and the disengaged was this interpretation of is the disease biological or not? Is it biological or behavioral? So you can see how in breast cancer, that factor would not even get on the table. Absolutely not. It's irrelevant. Every woman with breast cancer knows that this is a biological condition and it requires medication. So this this also answers another question that I'll just throw in here, David, which I get asked all the time is, are these cognitive models the same for different conditions? No, and you say in the book that they do vary, yes, yes. They do vary, and you can see by comparing ADHD with breast cancer why they might vary. So in breast cancer, the the biological basis of the disease doesn't even come in as a factor. Very different model there. One of the top factors we found in the the breast cancer model, and in in breast cancer, 26% of women with breast cancer terminate their oral treatment early. Now, this is the oral treatment after surgery, radiation, and chemo. There's a five-year course of treatment we call adjuvant therapy, and it's just a, a small pill. It's very easy when you compare it to what they've re- you know been through with the surgery, radiation, and chemo. Um, relatively a very easy regimen to maintain over five years, but 26% quit after one year of treatment. So we did some work with Harvard Medical School with Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and one of the biggest factors there was and the playing the odds really, David, on risk reduction. There's there's definitely a a risk of a recurrence of cancer and, you know, every woman knows that and they're even told what the percent risk of a recurrence is when they get diagnosed and it gets reduced when they have their surgery. It gets further reduced when they have their radiation. It gets further reduced when they have their chemotherapy. Now they could leave their odds at chance of a recurrence after having been through all of that, or they can reduce it further to say 5% risk of a recurrence by going through five years of oral treatment after. So we found that this, you know, role playing of, or scenario playing of the odds was a key factor in the decision making to stick with um, the five-year treatment in breast cancer. Some women would say, you know, the adherers would say, absolutely, I'm going to fight this. And there's a, a very strong fighting metaphor in breast cancer. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to win my battle with cancer. And I'll do everything possible to, you know, make sure this doesn't come back. So that's a very fighting attitude to reduce the risk. On the other hand, we have people who say, well, there's a small risk that it will come back. If it's going to come back, it's going to come back, and there's not a lot I can do about it. So there's more of a defeatist attitude, and they're going to just take the odds for what they are. Very different to what we see in ADHD. So let me ask, so now with these two examples and this um, explanation, what's your sense of the sensitivity to this in your experience working with uh, providers? I'd have to imagine it's your experience has been pretty sobering. Well, the providers do feel, you know, the the pain of this. You know, we're doing some really nice research at the minute with the Cleveland Clinic. And when we developed our diabetes cognitive model, 
Uh, we have now a tapping tool or a diagnostic tool that with 11 questions we can ask the, the patients with diabetes and we can put them now into categories. You know, there's basically three categories. First category is they're going to be fine, they're, they're going to be engaged, they know what's going on, they've got the right long-term vision, they're aware of the complications, they're going to battle it through and they're going to do all the right things and we can tell that at baseline when they come in and they're newly diagnosed or you know a year after diagnosis or mm -hmm. whatever we can say this patient's going to manage self-manage effectively and manage to good control and then there's two other categories both of which we would say are, are not going to manage those diabetes well they may say that they are they may even have the good intentions david to do it right but they're not going to get success there and there's two different types of those now when we generated that model that profiling tool we were working with the vice chair of endocrinology there dr zimmerman is a wonderful colleague and he was very enthusiastic he said finally i am now able to tell which patients are not going to get it right and which are going to be fine he said i've always known that half of my patients when they walk out of mm -hmm. my clinic are not going to follow through I've always known that, but I've never known who is who. Now I can tell. So, you know, because in the physician's office, the physicians go to great lengths to ask the patient, do you follow what I'm, you know, communicating? Do you understand? And I'll even write notes and they'll give them little brochures to take home. And the patients nod and they say, yes, and I, I will take this prescription. And yes, I want a prescription. And yes, I'll fill it. And yes, I'll take it. Even those people fail in their own self-management. It's not that they're being lazy, it's just that they're, they're struggling to manage all of the other things that are going on and they have misrepresented how they need to manage their disease. And now we can identify who they are and more appropriately support them. So I think the physicians, are, the healthcare providers are doing as much as they feel that they can, as much as the resources that they have, where I would like to see more effort, David, is actually with um, the pharmaceutical companies and the health plans. I think the health plans have a huge role to play here. They have a massive potential to reallocate how patients are getting supported. Really, you know, a lot of it lies in, in their control. And I'd like to and see... And their self-interest. What's that? And, and their self-interest. It's, it, it's very much in their self-interest, yes. I mean, if we can support physicians and other providers of care around the patient in really understanding the patient and giving them the resources that they really need and not these pseudo-resources that, you know, when you go into a physician's office, there's so many resources there. I was up at the Cleveland Clinic yesterday and, you know, just looking around at all the different pamphlets that, that are there. You know, in any physician's office that you go into, there's a lot of materials, and I pick them up, and I'm thinking, you know, these are not going to change behavior. They're, they're not. Mm -hmm. It's like the same old mantra going out to smokers. Did you know that smoking causes cancer? Yes. Did you know that smoking kills? Yes. You know, in, in Ireland, where I grew up, the cigarette boxes had, um, they were white with a black skull and crossbones on them, and big letters smoking kills on the on the one side and on the other side you could put your you know marlboro branding but on the on the one side it had to have this just a plain white face with a black skull and crossbones the message was clear but mm -hmm. that's not going to change behavior 
So I think if we could get health plans and even pharmaceutical companies to redirect, they're already spending the money, David, in, in developing very intricate and technologically sophisticated solutions for patients. They're just not slotting into those technologies cognitive science. And without a cognitive science insert, it's really not going to happen. Yeah, I think the real opportunity, and the question I would have asked, I think the opportunity is in care coordination. Yes. Now, we do know, uh, for example, Medicare started paying a small fee, uh, reimbursement fee to providers uh, to do a better job of care coordination. So I think uh, the opportunity is um, in that space. And for all those that do provide physicians uh, out-service uh, care coordination programming. Sorry to say, uh, Andre, we're at our time boundary, but I have to say this is a fascinating conversation. I thought your, your work was terrific. Again, uh, how patients think a science-based strategy for patient engagement and population health certainly um, perfectly timed for where we are in trying to uh, move from uh, volume, as they say, to value. I did note in your work, you did mention accountable care organizations uh, towards the end. And of course, this is all about what they're uh, supposed to achieve, again, is higher quality uh, mm -hmm. and desired patient outcomes. So with that, Andre, let me say thank you for your time. I'm very appreciative. Thank you very much. And can I just add that the book has just launched on Amazon, so it is available on Amazon.com now for anybody who wants to have a read of how patients think. Great. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.